This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Missy Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Christy Stilwell, author of the chapbook Amnesia and the novel The Wolf Tone, which tells the story of the intersection of Margot Fickett, a classical musician, and Eva Baker, mother to a three-year-old as a result of a teen pregnancy. The two women's lives become intertwined as the paternity of Eva's child comes to light. The wolf tone is set in a Montana college town, just as medical marijuana is becoming legal. The novel explores issues of motherhood and class, parental expectations, and the meaning of work. We began the interview with Stillwell discussing the impetus for the story. Well, I I would go all the way back to um, 2011. When I was staying at, I had written another novel and it was out being assessed by others and I was going a little crazy and I had the idea, that was where I first wrote Sully. So the book started with Sully. We don't meet him until chapter three and he is the, um, he's a disabled veteran, single father uh, in his thirties who is the boyfriend of Eva who we meet right away in the novel. He was inspired by real events that happened in Montana in 2011, all revolving around the cannabis caravan. And the state kind of went a little crazy when in two, late 2010 with the um, Obama administration Justice Department memo that said um, medical marijuana was legal and nobody would be bothered if they were growing it and um, in, in that business if they were following the state regulations. So Montana exploded with cannabis providers everywhere, all around. And this just, the idea fascinated me. I just couldn't stop thinking about how funny it was to me that suddenly we were changing our, it was just such a cultural shift. And to me, it all came down to language. So suddenly a pot grower was a cannabis provider or a marijuana provider. And that just, four words, and it shifted the entire culture. So I couldn't stop thinking about that. And Sully is, of course, a marijuana grower. And in the novel, he has a uh, medical marijuana business grow operation. And um, I just immediately loved him just from the moment I, I started writing about him and his background and his role as a single dad and how he came to Montana. All of those things just fascinated me. So the story kind of spiraled out of there. You mentioned that you feel like Montana changed when that happened. I mean, now it's kind of widespread. I mean, I sit here in Colorado where it's, you know, in Aspen, we have more recreational marijuana shops than we do liquor stores. So it's definitely changed all over. But can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. The um, wave of uh, marijuana growers and um, providers was called the cannabis caravan when it hit the state. And that this was in 2011. It's very different now because it all got toned back. It all got just reined in. But at the time, the state laws were very um, opaque. It wasn't really clear what was legal and what wasn't. So you would see in like the Hastings parking lot, giant um, trailers and RVs where you could go and for 200 bucks, you could have a medical exam, get your card, and buy your cannabis right there. And that was just 
we had never seen anything like that. It was a pretty conservative state. So, and that was in Bozeman, that was in Missoula, that was in Helena, that was all over the state. And um, the other thing that happened was that the storefront medical marijuana shops began opening everywhere. And in fact, at the time I was doing, I was working out at a place and right next door, a medical provider opened up and they weren't like, it was just, you could see them out the window. You could watch the situation, the customers coming in and I was busy. It was all hopping. And, um, within a year that had all changed, the state said, we've got to change this. We have to shut it down. And we, Bozeman and anywhere in Montana is nothing like Aspen now, though medical marijuana is still legal. We're a long ways from recreational legality. So I wanted to explore that line between, well, just the change in the viewpoint that, that line that, I mean, we've crossed it now. That now seems like ancient history. Like you said, it's so, you know, it's recreational marijuana is legal all over, but it was weird how quickly we were all just expected to um, accept this and be okay with it. And plus I saw, I loved what I saw out the window going on when I was working out. I loved the guys that I saw out there. They were largely men hanging around, talking, laughing, having fun. Some of them, the, the one guy um, drove, and I put this in the book, a um, black Dodge Charger. I had to put that in. It was just so classic, kind of like a gangster car. But now it was cool. Now it was okay. And now it was legal. Love that. It's fascinating. The wolf tone in general tells the story mostly of the main character, whose name is Margot. And she is the mother of a son named Benji, and she's married to Andy. And they, that family, they're all musicians. She's a classical musician. Her husband's more of a bluegrass musician. And her young son is off in college also exploring music. And we learn from the very first chapter a young woman comes to Margot and seems in some ways that maybe she's extorting her for money um, because she says, this little boy right here is your grandchild. You didn't know it, but your son fathered this child, and I want money. So that was Eva. And so you have this mixture of this musical family and this, I wouldn't call Margot uptight necessarily, but she has basically been a rule follower all her life. And then all of a sudden, this woman comes in and says, this is your grandkid. I want $5,000. And the $5,000 is for Eva to buy into Sully's marijuana business so she can make more money and then start her own business. So that's kind of the gist of the whole novel. So how did you go from Sully to this greater story? I also had, while I was writing about Sully and the medical marijuana changes in Montana and just basically getting to know the character Sully, also going way back to like 2008 or 2009, I had um, encountered a woman on the pool deck, believe it or not, while my son was taking um, swim lessons and her son was too. And she was reading and she had these papers in her lap and I was just fascinated by that. And I'm always nosy about what people are reading. And so I, I kind of walked by and craned my neck and saw that it wasn't even a book. It was, it was sheets of music. It was a, it was a score, a musical score. And um, that implanted the idea of what, why, why would someone be sitting there reading music? What, what, what do they get out of that? I'm not a musician, and um, though I love music, 
all music. And then I thought, I, I want to write about a musician, someone who's really passionate about an art form that I know nothing about that fascinated me. So that idea was in the back of my mind all along. I just didn't know that that idea would connect to Sully. And the more I got to know Sully, the more I realized that what interested me about him was how his life might intersect with kind of, I mean, I almost divided it into like a high and low culture. And so you have this marijuana culture and then you have this classical music culture. And so I just thought, oh, what kind of drama would you get if I had both those elements in the same story? And then came Margot. And throughout all of, all of this time, I started kind of, you know, based on experiences with my own children getting into music, um, I encountered the cello and kind of fell in love with the cello. It's by far my favorite instrument. And um, then I started... I happened to meet and see, I actually I sought out the principal cellist for the Bozeman Symphony Orchestra. And strangely, it turned out to be that woman that I had seen on the pool deck all those years ago. So then it just felt like, well, this is meant to be. I have to write, I have to get to know this woman. And of course, Margot Fickett is nothing like the principal cellist for the Bozeman Symphony, but she did let me follow. I bought her coffee. I followed her around not only to symphony rehearsals, but to um, inner teaching um, jobs. So a lot of the scenes where Margot is with her cello students were kind of me uh, eavesdropping on things that she said to her students, though she's not at all a harsh teacher. She's really friendly. And I kind of made Margot, I, I think you're, you were right to call Margot a little bit uptight because she is a rule follower and she is, um, she likes things a certain way. And she likes her students to behave a certain way and music behaves a certain way. And things kind of unravel for her when she she can't play. I can't remember if you said she gets injured in the first chapter. And so she can't play. And that provides the instability that kind of sets the whole ball rolling for the trouble she finds herself in. So when you started doing research about the music, because music is, it isn't, as you said, it's not just what Margot does. It's part of who she is. And, you know, you have this great opportunity when you're writing to sort of meld what you do and who you are into this one poetic motion. What did you learn that maybe you didn't know or that surprised you when you started following this woman that you folded into your novel? One of the things that I absolutely loved was something she just told me flat out that while symphony members, she was speaking for herself and, and she thought all musicians have moments in the middle of a performance or a rehearsal where they're thinking about other things, where they, they know the piece so well, they've rehearsed it so much, they might actually find their mind wandering. That stunned me because that happens to me in writing too. I, my mind, I get distracted, my mind wanders and even in the middle of a scene and then I bring it back and there's moments of intensity and then there's moments of distraction in music, just as in writing and probably all art. I found that fascinating. So as we go along, as soon as Margot and Eva sort of meet, they become intertwined and Margot has these decisions to make about if she's going to pay Eva the money, if if Eva's telling the truth and this is really her grandchild, if she should tell her husband and her son about this, how far she wants to investigate. But it's really her journey of figuring things out. So what sort of questions 
were you asking yourself? I mean, why was this the plot point? What philosophical questions did maybe you want to discover as you were or explore while you were writing? Well, I definitely was interested in what would happen to someone who could not do that thing, as you put it so well, you can become, she's more than just a musician. She doesn't just play music. Music is part of who she is. And I feel like people who find that are are lucky and yet vulnerable because what happens to us when we, for some, due to injury, illness, grief, psychological breakdowns, who knows, when we can't do that thing that is so part of who we are. So I was curious about that. What would, what kind of unraveling would occur if, if she couldn't. And then I was also, I was curious too about, um, the whole idea of what it would be like to be in pretty, pretty content and, uh, you know, early middle age to discover something or even entertain the idea of having a grandchild, something that completely knocked a person out of their own sense of identity, their sense of who they thought they were, their own morality, their values, their, who they thought their, their son was, their, their children. And the notion of, um, the things our children can get up to that we don't even know about or think about or consider. So that the, from the, from coming from a parenting standpoint, the idea that, you know, where do you end or where do I end and you begin was very much on my mind too. But and, and my kids are not, my kids are just now teens. They're not in college, but still you start thinking about that from the moment your kids are, you know, fully conscious at age five, they're up to things that you, you don't know anything about. It seemed like the other thing that came up again and again was pushing your children and how hard do you push them and the ways that you push them. So for instance, toward the end, Margot sort of realized that her own son maybe was pushed in certain ways. And he was kind of geeky and compared to Eva, the woman who he had a child with, even though he didn't know that, she seemed more cool and tough and together. She she also grew up pretty wealthy, but, you know, the idea of her getting pregnant and not going to college was a big disappointment to her parents, and she was struggling financially, and then she's dating this cannabis grower. So can you talk about a little bit about that notion of, of pushing your children and the role that maybe that played in your narrative, because it came up for a few different characters. I could think two things. The first thing is the question of pu- pushing them. And um, like in, in Margot's instance, um, the question of why, like what is the impetus to push them? I, th- I think that's a question parents push and push and push. And I'm guilty of this too. And very rarely do we, step back and say, why, why do I want this so badly for my child? And, um, what does it mean if, if he doesn't want the same thing that I do? And, um, so I think that's a a huge question that I was looking at at the, when I was writing it. And then the other thing is this notion of parental disappointment that you mentioned that Eva's parents 
are in the novel, and it was quite fun to write them because it did bring up the idea of parental disappointment and the pressure that can put on a kid that the parents don't aren't even aware of, or they just feel that they have a right to. They have a right to their disappointment, and you know they don't really consider what the consequence of that disappointment can be. And I, I stopped short of saying that that it's her parents' disappointment that contribute to that contributes to or maybe even creates Eva's magical thinking. I don't think I would go that far, but she is guilty of some magical thinking, and she and and maybe in some ways all young people are. I certainly was, but I feel like there is a connection between parental expectations. And the ability to just delude oneself as a young person that, well, this will turn out okay. Well, I'll just figure it out. I, I, I'm going to keep my child and I'm going to figure out how to support it, have a job and maintain, you know, a, a mortgage payment. I, I don't exactly know how, but I'll just figure that out. And there's the scene when Eva's parents, you know, are confronted with her pregnancy and they're just saying, how? Particularly her mother, how exactly are you going to do that. Another topic mm-hmm. the book brings up is teen pregnancy. There were always after school specials about the pregnant teen and the girl, you know, and it was all, there were always cautionary tales, you know, basically the message was don't get pregnant as a teenager. And um, I felt like one of the things that I was interested in, and of course it is mostly Eva and Margot's story, but I was another question I was exploring is what, what if, the teen parent is a boy or what, what what happened to the boy the dad in that instance the the teen pregnancy that is a, from the boy's point of view and um of course in my story he he doesn't know he hasn't been told which of course can't happen to a girl but what about when when he finds out and then and then the idea of his parents what is the parents role in that situation. I don't feel like that's a story we hear that often, that perspective of the boy, the dad, the teen dad, and how he feels. And again, I didn't, he, Benji is mostly off stage throughout um, the book. So I didn't get into it hugely, but as far as the parental role and how a parent might react to that, we don't see it that much. We don't see what people think or expect of their sons as much as we do about their daughters. We're kind of obsessed with the sexuality of daughters and girls. So I, th- I think that's interesting and bears further reflection. And he wasn't really on the page much. I mean, he does enter the book. Obviously, that was a conscious choice. But was it something you struggled with? Oh, I did. I did. I kept looking for examples of... Um, other novels where people who are off stage for much of the drama come back. And it was very daunting, the idea of how I was going to bring the men back. And um, I didn't feel like I could get away with a book where they didn't come back. And so that of all the of all the writing of all the book, that was the most work. I do like how it came together, but it took work and several drafts. And like there, there were moments that, won't be a surprise to anyone who's attempted a novel it, it, where it was just like roll up your sleeves and sweat it out and write the scenes because it was just hard. Can you tell me a little bit more about the title? For a long time, the, no- the novel was called Strings. 
And that was its working title, even in, in my computer with all the different drafts for years. And um, it's a very quick moment, but you might remember that that's the name of Margot's cello group that she's a part of that plays different kinds of cello music. But um, the wolf tone itself is a, a real phenomenon that occurs and um, in al- almost all stringed instruments, but especially the large ones like a bass or a cello. And it is a, it's a vibration that occurs. This is like your actual definition of it. When the um, vibration of a string is in competition with the vibration of the instrument's body. And um, it sounds bad. It's a bad sound. You, you can Google it and hear one if you're curious. It's, it's almost like a flapping of sound and it kind of like, it's like a flapping in your eardrum almost. It's, it's not that pleasant. And um, I understood from my research from uh, with the cello player that I met, it, it's quite common. Cello players deal with it all the time. And there are wolf tone suppressors one can choose to use or figure out a way to play around it. And I have to give credit to the idea. I had no, I didn't know about any of this yet. And I was at a lecture in grad school delivered by Kevin McElvoy, who um, said who he, it was called the wolf tone and his, the whole premise of that lecture was kind of using the wolf tone as a metaphor and he was encouraging uh, the people in the audience, us in the audience as writers, to explore our own wolf tones. And this was, I was several years into the novel by the time I heard this whole concept. And everything clicked into place for me at that moment, at that lecture. It was like he was talking to me. <laughs> and I've told him this. And it was this this beautiful metaphor to me that, because, uh, like, for instance, a, a a uh, cello can might not have an actual wolf tone, but it can have a generally wolfy area. I thought that was hilarious too. I could not, I mean, my jaw was dropping open when he said general wolfy area, because to me, that was Margot. Margot is living this moment in her life that is a wolfy area. And as soon as I heard that definition of, of the, um, this, the vibration of the string in conflict or in competition with the vibration of the body of the instrument, I just thought, oh yeah, I've lived that moment several times. I think all people know that moment in their lives. And we, we all have wolfy areas and we all, we have to get through them (laughs) when whatever way we can. What do you think is the wolfiest area of the novel? I think it's, it's Margot's remembrance of her past and things she's suppressed from her early twenties and her, hopes and aspirations and yes, even expectations of her son that all come kind of crashing down on her during this one spring that the spring she meets Eva and she is presented with this very wolfy area. All, maybe you could say it's all of these areas of her own self that she has not explored fully. You know, one of the things you talked about was Margot had this moment in the book when she was thinking about, you know, she's dedicated her whole life to music, her whole family plays music, but she realized that playing music wasn't fun for her. And sort of this idea of work versus fun and work and fun 
and and I don't think you were saying that work has to be fun, but it was something that was kind of startling to Margot to realize this kind of late in her life. I think what interests me about that whole idea of fun, and it's a conversation that she and Andy, she and her husband talk about a lot, you know, what is fun. This notion that what we love to do is fun. I feel like those two go hand in hand in in our minds in general. And yet I'm not sure it's true. I'm not sure that what we love, like, I even think I, you could think about a sports analogy. I, I, I think, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an athlete, but could you, could you ask a professional hockey player, someone who plays hockey every day of his life? So you love hockey. He'd probably say, yes. Is it really fun for you? I just don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think things that we, that people do really well, I don't think they come naturally, which is to say, I think you have to practice to be really good at something. And a lot, practice a lot, like every day and hours per day. Is that fun? Well, it's fun to be good at something, I think. It's fun to get something right. That feels good. But is that fun? I mean, I don't know. I, I'm, I haven't answered that question. I certainly brought it up in the novel. It's, it's one of those open-ended questions that I'll always wonder about. I, I, you know, I love to write. I do it every day. Is it fun? I'm kind of like Marco. I like laying in the bathtub reading a book. That's fun for me. What do you want people to get out of the book? I think it would be that, that we can change our minds. I, th- I think I wrote a book about a woman who changed her mind. And I like that. I like I like the idea that we can change our minds, that we can feel a certain way about our own selves and our values and our life, and we can things can happen to us and we can change our mind. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is from a book I read recently called Finishing School, the happy ending to that writing project you can't seem to get done. And I like this page by Carrie Tennis and Danielle Morton, and I like this passage about for what it has to say about the writing life. For it is an impossible task. We admit it. What we are doing is impossible. Yet there is no other way to persist in life with any dignity except by continuing to do this thing. If I abandon this thing, then all life feels hopeless. If I allow myself to be distracted, I am just an idiot, a child, not a man not a grown-up, not a woman. If I am distracted by shiny things that sing banal electronic melodies when I am trying to save my soul by doing the one thing I know how to do that brings purpose and meaning to my life, then I am a child, a puppet, a hopeless case. If I allow myself to be distracted this morning, tomorrow will be worse. I will be further from my goal. I must push on. So tell me why you chose that. Because it's a passage that I actually keep. I've cut it out, put it on a piece of decorative paper and taped it above my desk. It keeps me in my chair. And I think whatever keeps you in your chair, you should hold close. Can you read a passage you wrote? Maybe it was something tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Sure. This is from chapter 16 in the book. And it is Margot has already has had her first encounter, first meeting which is very sexually charged, with Dutch. Preoccupied by her looks, she was out on the deck working with the TheraBand and caught sight of a reflection, 
fascinated by her shorter hair and bare shoulders. She noticed herself in the chrome handle of the fridge. Brushing her teeth at night, she gazed in the mirror, watching herself blink. As was often the case in spring and fall, unstable seasons, the past was suddenly available. A door opened and all time flowed, a warm beckoning light. Into it she stepped, an experience beyond simple remembering. She re-inhabited her young body, could hear the loud, insect-laden Midwestern night filling her teenage bedroom. She felt the pulsing aliveness of the world outside their ugly rectangular house. The smell of the grass and trees, the fleshy scent of unfurling grain. She dreamt of Nigel Webster, the London violinist she met that summer in Colorado. The shock of life outside the nest, the beauty of people her own age, all musicians. She spotted Nigel the first day, struck by his assured beauty. He was tall with sandy blonde hair and pale eyes. The way he dressed, his casual slouch, his brilliant playing. He was perfect. When he caught her eye and smiled, her legs wobbled. New to such immensity of feeling, she was sure their meeting could not be random. It was fate. Other times, she felt she'd created him, imagining the perfect match for herself. The universe and its grand benevolence provided. Do you want to tell me a little bit more about why you chose that? That passage, Nigel is mentioned elsewhere in the book. Well, first of all, I should say, for me, I struggle with backstory. And all characters have backstory. They have memories, just like we do in, in real life. We're constantly remembering or referencing back to things that happened to us, um, you know, years ago from our childhood. And I struggle with that as a writer, how to, how to get that on the page without it feeling really contrived. And so I liked slipping into the um, description of nature and the weather and the season and bringing up memories. So that was a success. But this passage itself is the beginning of kind of another short um, revisiting to the memories of Nigel and what happened to her in her past. And I struggled with it because I, I felt from the passages before when we learned about Nigel and what happened in her past that it was done. And yet it was kind of a revelation to me that I could go back late. This was later, like several years in, and the manuscript was, you know, already taking shape. And you can still, at that point, go back in and kind of pry open the story and find places to feather in more backstory. And it kind of gives it more texture. It makes the characters become real. In fact, I would argue that feathering in backstory and information about characters later in the book's life, like much later in the story when you, th you might think, oh, I'm done and you might have another year ahead of you. I think that's when it really gets good. And I mean, I'm imagining it, I'm calling it feathering in, but I'm imagining it like a sculptor putting in, you know, you, you or I might look at it and think, oh, that's done. Gorgeous sculpture of a grizzly bear. When the artist might think, oh no, I'm not done. I'm just starting on the fur. And then I'll, the next time you see it, you know, it's going to have so much more nuance, so much more shadow, so much more depth. So that was a moment and this little mini scene that I'm reading from when I learned that. Where do you write? I have an office in my house. It's a small, the smallest room in the house at the top of the stairs. And it's got an excellent set of windows that look out over the treetops. And it's, it's my refuge. 
And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I walk. A lot of times I walk with a friend and we talk nonstop. We talk so much that we don't see any wildlife. And I completely forget my work when we go on walks. Other times I need to walk by myself. And I might be processing a scene or a story or or maybe I am just fed up with it, need to get away from it. And when I walk by myself, I like to walk with the dog and my mind goes blank. And I love that. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a writer's group and um, it depends on who's available and who's the least busy and whether or not it's fiction or nonfiction or story or part of a novel. But one, if, if not all of them, is who I turn to, turn to first. How have you dealt with rejection? I've gone from thinking that I handled it well and that I didn't care when I was rejected to realizing that I was actually quite destroyed by rejection and that it silenced me for years. So when I was young, I think I thought, oh, I have a very thick skin. I, I, I'm fine. And then 10 years in, I sort of thought, gee, I'm really not that fine with rejection. I actually hate being rejected. And so that forced me to really think about that and look at what I was doing to myself because a writer, of course, is going to be dealing with rejection regularly. And so I, I guess I sort of hit this point probably about 10 years ago where I realized I needed to do a little more work on how I processed rejection. And um, now I'm to the place where I can honestly say that it's going to happen and it's going to hurt and I'm going to feel it. And then I'm probably going to go for a walk with the dog and let it go. And what is your favorite word? My favorite word is dusk. I like the sound of it. I like the mouthfeel of that word. I like that time of day. I like the fragility of it. I like that we have a word, one word with four letters that describes something so profound. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Christy Stilwell, author of The Wolf Tone. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.